Well, we've heard some wonderful truths expressed this evening already through hymns, through songs that we've sung, through hymns that we've, or songs that we've heard sung. And isn't this a wonderful Good Friday? It's a Good Friday because Sunday's coming when Jesus is raised from the dead. Throughout centuries, there has much, been much debate about the, who is responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. And there has been different opinions about it. Some people say, well, it's the Jewish people. Others will say, well, it's the Jewish leaders specifically, that they're responsible. Judas admitted, I have betrayed innocent blood. Maybe he's the one responsible. Pilate repeatedly found that he was innocent, and yet he condemned him to death. The Romans, obviously, they were the executioners, so they're also responsible. But the truth of the matter is that we all are responsible in the death of Jesus Christ. It is your sin and my sin that nailed Jesus Christ to the cross. It's because of us that he went to the cross. It doesn't matter if we're Jew or Greek or Gentile or whatever. You know, we are responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. As 1 Peter 2 verse 24 says, He bore our sins in his body on the tree. It was my sin that put him there. We are all guilty of his death. And we never want to lose sight of that fact that we are totally responsible for his death. Yet, we cannot overlook a fact, the fact that the sovereign God had a plan that could not be thwarted. I don't understand how these two fit together, but it is a fact. We are responsible for his death, and yet God had a sovereign plan that cannot be thwarted. Somehow, from birth all the way to his death, Jesus was in sovereign control. And we want to notice this evening Christ's control, particularly in his passion. And we want to look at four different scenes that demonstrate Christ's control even throughout his passion. Let's look at scene number one. And this is a very broad scene, but I think it's good for us to get a, an overview of it, of his life. That's scene number one, his life. Jesus lived his life according to a divine schedule. And he was in absolute control of that schedule. He was not one minute behind or one minute ahead. None of us have control over our death. But Jesus did. He told his disciples that he would be killed. He told them when he would be killed. He told them who would kill him. He said how he would be killed and where he would be killed. I don't know about you, but I'm not aware of any attempt on my life. I don't know if you've experienced anything like that, and if you, if you have, I'm sure you know it. <laughs> but Jesus' enemies repeatedly sought to either arrest or to kill him, preferably the latter, and they constantly failed. It starts off with King Herod. He tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. And he failed. In Nazareth, 
Remember that he was in the synagogue and they were upset with what he said and they went to push him over a cliff and Luke 4.30 says that he walked through their midst and went away. Now what exactly he did, what happened there, I don't know. But somehow he got away. John 30, I'm, I'm sorry, John 7 verse 30, the Jewish leaders tried to arrest him, but notice what he says here. No one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Very interesting. His hour had not yet come, so no one could touch him. John 8 verse 20 basically says the same thing. Jesus was teaching in plain view in the temple in enemy territory, and it says, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. The same chapter, John 8, verse 59, the Jews wanted to stone him, but somehow Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. John chapter 10, verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and he was not stoned. Eight verses later, John 10, 39, again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Jesus was untouchable because he was on a sovereign plan, on a sovereign schedule. And according to his schedule, it was not time yet. He was in control. But when the divine alarm clock rang, indicating it's time, everything changed. Jesus then said, this is two chapters later, John 12, verses 23 and 27, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? For this purpose I have come. And a little bit later in John 13, verse 1, the Apostle John is giving a commentary about, um, well, before Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. And it says here, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to his Father. Jesus knew exactly what was going on and was still in absolute sovereign control of his divine schedule. Not the Jews, not the chief priests, not the Sanhedrin, not the Romans. Jesus was in control. Scene two. Let's look at his arrest. If we were reading the Gospels for the very first time, and I think it's good for us to do that sometimes. Read it as if you're reading it for the very first time. But if you were reading the Gospels for the very first time, after reading all of that, you might expect that when the soldiers came to the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest him, they were surrounding him, that the next verse that we would read is, and Jesus walked right out from the midst of them and left the garden, and no one touched him. We might think that that is what would happen, just as it happened in Nazareth. But this time was very different. They arrested him. Well, no. Um, he allowed himself to be arrested. He was in sovereign control even at his arrest. Turn with me to John chapter 18. And I want to read verses 1 through 8. John 18, verses 1 through 8. 
John 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, notice that, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing there. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. At every arrest scene, you have at least two people involved. Possibly more, but at least two. There is the arrestor, the one that is doing the arresting, and there's the arrestee, the one that is being arrested. That is actually a word in the dictionary. I'm not making it up. It is very interesting here in the Garden of Gethsemane who is calling the shots. It's not the arrestors. It's the arrestee that is calling the shots. Notice, first of all, that Jesus was in control at his arrest. Jesus walked straight towards his arrest. He knew exactly what Judas was up to. Judas knew Jesus' schedule. He knew that he was planning to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus knew that Judas knew. He easily could have avoided capture. He could have hid. No, left the upper room and gone and hidden and avoided capture. Notice in verse 3, it mentions a band of soldiers coming. Um, some other translations use the word cohort. A cohort in the Roman sense, military term, was a military term, for 600 soldiers. Now most likely, not all 600 soldiers were present at this time. But there are no doubt enough soldiers that in their minds, they were able to overpower Jesus and his disciples. Jesus knew they were coming. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's dark. He could have run. He could have hidden. But he didn't. Instead, he boldly went to meet them. And he identified himself. And notice verses 4 through 6. Just um, I'll pick out a few words here. Jesus came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. This word fall here refers to falling flat on the ground. If it wasn't so tragic, this would really be a humorous scene. Um, This is the same word that's used of Saul of Tarsus, remember, on the road to Damascus, that Jesus appeared to him, and it says that he fell. 
He fell flat on the ground. Jesus spoke two words, and these well-trained men in top-notch physical condition, it just blew them away, literally. They fell flat on the ground. They could not help themselves. Now, what caused the soldiers to fall? I don't know. The text doesn't tell us. Was it Jesus' courage and boldly identifying himself? Could be. Possibly, um, it was Jesus' Jesus's calm, commanding presence that unnerved them. Maybe it was his words, I am, because he identified himself as I am. Maybe he's identifying himself as God. Or possibly, all three factors are involved here. Notice too that Jesus took charge at his arrest. In the middle of a football game, you know, there's all kinds of action taking place. There's tackling and running and blocking, and suddenly everything stops because the coach has called timeout. Well, Peter got excited in the midst of everything that's going on in the garden. He pulled out his dagger and started you no know, swinging away, and he missed his target. He only cut off the ear. And Jesus said, Hey, timeout! Notice the arrestee. Time out. Peter, you put your dagger away. Malchus, come over here. Let me heal your ear. Jesus was calling the shots in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's amazing that Jesus healed Malchus. I mean, that's, that's amazing in itself. But stop and think about this too. That's also amazing. It's amazing that they gave Jesus the time and the space to heal Malchus. What is the very first thing that a policeman will do when he arrests someone? He tries to control the arrestee's hands, right? Behind their backs. Controlling the hands is the very first thing. Can you imagine an arresting officer allowing the criminal to touch his face? To touch his ear? I mean, that's what Malchus was. He was among one of those that was arresting him. Jesus touched his ear and healed him. Jesus was in sovereign control. Notice, too, that Jesus was in control of who was arrested. Going back to verses 4 through 8, it is interesting that you see two times Jesus asked, Whom do you seek? In other words, what he's saying is, Whose name is on the arrest warrant? They said, Well, um, Jesus of Nazareth. Twice they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And two times he identified himself. I'm Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. He made it crystal clear that he alone is to be arrested. No one else. He was protecting his disciples. And in verse 8, just to make it even clearer, said, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, if it's my name that's on the arrest warrant, 
let these men go. Again, the arrestee is the one that's controlling things here. They were not allowed to arrest any of the disciples. Now, the officers dutifully, they were doing what Jesus told them to do. No disciple was arrested. And then Peter, you know, he got into it and he cut off Malchus's ear and he should have been arrested. He really should have for seriously injuring the officer. But Jesus healed Malchus, possibly or probably, so that Peter would not be arrested. One person said, if Jesus had not healed Malchus's ear, there would have been four crosses on Calvary the next day. But Jesus was in total control of who was arrested. And it's also interesting to note that Jesus was in control despite not accepting help during his arrest. Jesus had plenty of defense at his disposal. In Matthew 26, verses 52 through 54, Jesus told Peter, No, put your dagger away, Peter. Put your sword back into place. And then he said these words, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? At once. If I would request them, they would be there. A legion at the time of Jesus was a Roman military term for 6,000 soldiers. Jesus was saying, I could have more than 6,000 times 12. 72,000 angels plus at my disposal. Now, no man in scripture that we have record of could stand up against just one angel. In the Old Testament, we have the story of King Sennacherib from, from Assyria that he surrounded Jerusalem and you remember the story that the angel of the Lord went out? Just one angel. 185,000 dead Assyrians the next morning. One angel. Don't you think that one angel could have handled this ragtag group that, was come, that came to arrest Jesus? The arresters were no match for one angel, let alone 72,000 plus. Jesus could have summoned angels to overpower the arresting officers and to rescue himself. But he refused to do it because he was on a divine plan. There was a sovereign plan that he was following. He was on a divine mission and he was in control. Let's move on to scene three at his trial. Before Jesus was crucified... He was taken before the high priest. He was taken before the Sanhedrin, before Pilate, then to Herod, then back to Pilate. And it's interesting to notice that, well, notice what he said and what he didn't say. There were many times that he didn't say a word. He didn't say a word to King Herod. Not a word. Let's, let's notice, first of all, Jesus' silence here at his trials. He spoke little to the Sanhedrin, and as I mentioned, he didn't say a word to Herod. Why was Jesus silent? Well, there could be different reasons. 
Um, some person might say, well, he, you know, Isaiah prophesied that he would be mute as a sheep before his shears are dumb, so he opened out his mouth. That could be. Um, someone might say, well, Jesus' words would be futile anyway, so he, didn't, so he didn't speak. Maybe so. But I suspect that there's another reason. Stop and think about the power of Jesus' words. You remember that in John chapter 7, officers were sent to arrest Jesus. And they came back empty-handed. And the Jewish leaders asked, well, where is he? We sent you to arrest him. Why didn't you come with him? And this was their answer. No one ever spoke like this man. They're basically saying, have you heard Jesus speak? How could we arrest such a person? His words just overpowered them. They could not touch him. And during his ministry, on numerous occasions, just a couple of words or a question decimated his opponent's well-thought-out arguments and verbal traps. We have different examples of that that I'm not going to take time to look at. Jesus' words were powerful. Jesus, by his words, if he had answered, he could have gone free. He easily could have gone free. But I am convinced that he stayed quiet so that he could go to the cross. Because there was a divine plan that he was following. And also notice when Jesus spoke. Before his trial, the Sanhedrin had already decided that Jesus should be executed. All that they needed was to figure out, well, what crime are we going to accuse him of? And the poor Sanhedrin, they were having a terrible time trying to come up with the crime. What are we going to accuse him of? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. Verses 59 through 60. Matthew 26, verses 59 through 60. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none. Not even false testimony they can come up with. Though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to be rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. Let me just stop there. They couldn't find any reason, not even false reasons. The whole house of cards is just kept collapsing, kept falling down. They could not fall, find any reason to execute him. And the frustrated high priest then asked Jesus, under oath, are you the divine Messiah? Basically, that's what he's asking. Let's keep on reading. Verse 63. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Messiah in other words, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. In other words, as we would say it, yes. 
But I tell you, from now on that you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. Just what I was looking for. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they all said, Yea, we have the answer. He deserves death. Now it's a kangaroo court. Now interestingly enough, Jesus knew what they were up to. He knew that. Jesus knew that answering the question truthfully would provide them with the long sought for ammunition to execute him. Yet Jesus chose to speak, deliberately giving them the reason that they wanted so they could kill him. So that they could say he blasphemed. That deserves death. Jesus just handed it to them on a silver platter. Because they weren't doing a good job on their own. Let me help you out. There it is. Jesus spoke at his trial to accomplish his divine, his sovereign mission. That's why he spoke up. Let's look at the fourth scene, his death. On the cross, Jesus repeatedly was taunted. If you're the Messiah, save yourself. And the fact is he could have. But he refused. The account of his death is most unusual. Mere moments before he died, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three Gospels, mentioned that he cried out with a loud voice. I don't know if you've been with people who are dying. I have, and I've never heard anyone crying out with a loud voice just before they die. Their voice gets weaker and weaker and weaker and we would expect that Jesus would hardly be able to talk anymore. Just a whisper. Because there's no strength anymore. That's not true. To be able to speak loudly, there has to be some strength there. He was still strong. And apparently it was a shout of victory when he cried out, It is finished! The divine plan is accomplished! And then how is his death described? Well, in John 19.30 and other places too, it says that he gave up his spirit. He willingly dismissed his spirit. Voluntary, a voluntary act of his sovereign will. John 10 Verses 15 through 18. Two times Jesus says, I lay down my life. I lay down my life. And then he goes on to say, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus did not die as a helpless martyr. His death was not an accident. Jesus' life was not taken. He gave his life. Jesus was consciously in sovereign control all the way up to the very end when he breathed his last. And Pilate was amazed when they told him that Jesus is dead already. You remember that the soldiers went to break the legs of those on the cross so that they would die sooner. And they didn't do it. 
because Jesus was already dead. Something most unusual because a person, depending on the weather, they could be hanging on the cross for days. But Jesus willingly, voluntarily gave up his spirit. Now maybe you're asking the question, the so what question, and so what? What does this mean to you and me? Well, Jesus intentionally, deliberately, knowingly, purposefully, sovereignly walked one step at a time towards the cross, towards his death. He had control over the situation. Any moment from the time of his arrest to the time of his death, he could have said, Father, I've had it. No, I'm not putting up with this anymore. Just send one of your legions of angels and get me out of this mess. He could have done that. But Jesus refused to use the power and authority at his disposal. He humbly chose to go through with it. Can you imagine the almighty creator allowing those that he created, people, you and me, to arrest him, bind him, beat him, scourge him mercifully, mercilessly, crown him with thorns, jeer and mock at him, spit on him, and then nail him to a cross, hanging there like a despised criminal. Let me ask a question. Can one nail restrain the hand of omnipotent God? No way. Absolutely not. Jesus was not restrained on the cross by a nail in this hand, a rusty iron nail in this hand, and one in his feet. He was not restrained on the cross because of that. He was restrained on the cross, yes, but he was restrained on the cross because of his love. His grace is the only thing that kept him there because he could have been off of there in no time flat. Every single second that Jesus hung there on the cross, he could have gotten off. And every second that he hung there, he was communicating to you and to me, I love you, I love you, I love you. That's why I'm here. Why did Jesus suffer and die? We are totally responsible for his death. We have sinned. We are the ones that deserve to die, not Jesus. We are the ones that deserve hell for all eternity, not Jesus. Our, na- our sins nailed him to the cross. But is it possible for man to nail sovereign, almighty creator to the cross without his consent? Absolutely not. Jesus was in sovereign control 
yet willingly gave himself up for you and for me. As I was preparing this, the words of Isaac Watts' hymn drew my attention. And I think he sums it up well in two verses. They're questions, but they're really statements. Isaac Watts wrote, Alas, and did my Savior bleed? Did my Sovereign die? Notice, Sovereign. Did my Sovereign die? Would He devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Was it for crimes that I have done that he groaned upon the tree? Amazing pity. Grace unknown and love beyond degree. Let's pray. Father, we just stand in awe. We marvel at what you allowed your son to go through. And Jesus, how can we ever thank you for your amazing pity, the grace unknown, and love beyond degree? Spending all eternity, we cannot thank you enough. We're grateful that though you're God, though you're sovereign, you willingly, voluntarily gave up your life for me, for each one of us. We thank you and we praise you this evening for it. In Jesus' name, amen.